This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, uh, and Happy New Year to all of you. Uh, this is the first podcast of the new year. hope people have had a chance to listen uh, to the episode in which I gave some attempted predictions for the year ahead. Uh, I think, you know, some of them have already maybe come to pass. Others, I uh, things have already happened, I'm sure, as we all know, that I failed to foresee, but not sure I can hold myself entirely accountable for that. But in this episode, I want to look at um, a theme uh, that I think is very pertinent at the moment, um, which is philanthropy and democracy. So what is the relationship between the two? What role does philanthropy play in a democracy? To what extent is philanthropy itself democratic or needs to aim to become more democratic? And how does that happen? Now, obviously, I'm recording this uh, in the week when we've seen the the shocking scenes uh, in Washington, D.C., with um, rioters uh, storming the Capitol building uh, supporters of President Trump there and what many are saying as an attempted coup. That's not necessarily the prompt for, for what I want to talk about today and I wouldn't pretend to have any you know, especially incisive views about that particular situation. It makes what we're talking about today more timely than ever I think but, but the idea of the relationship between philanthropy and democracy I think is something that's been a running theme throughout this show and certainly my work um, for a long time I mean, I was actually looking back I think it was the, uh, the theme of the first ever episode of this podcast was philanthropy and politics and the fourth ever episode was about democracy and power so it's certainly something we've covered before um, and you know you'll you'll note I think as we go through the podcast I'll probably shout out some references to other episodes that we've done interviews and also sort of deep dive thematic episodes that are relevant but I thought you know it was worth coming back to at this point in time uh, partly because I feel like I've thought about it and learned a lot more about it since then and spoken to some people who know far more than I do about it um, but also the point at which we did some of those episodes I guess was in 2017 uh, sort of almost four years ago now when this podcast started and that was a point at which we had you know we were in the early stages of trying to work out what things like the Trump presidency and the Brexit vote here in the UK meant and people were first starting to ask questions about you know what is happening to the concept of liberal democracy and we're sort of now bookending that I guess at the point where one way or another we've got to the end of, of Brexit or at least this phase of Brexit in the UK and we're sort of seeing the final days of the, the Trump presidency although there will inevitably be an aftermath I would think longer term to that so so it seemed like a good time to, to come back to the topic and I want to, to look at it I think in three ways, which you know I have done before in kind of previous writing and a little bit on this podcast. But first of all, I want to, to look at the question of the role of philanthropy within a democracy and to break that into whether philanthropy is inherently something that is positive and reinforces democracy or whether it's something that is kind of fundamentally anti-democratic or even if not fundamentally often ends up being anti-democratic because of the way it's practiced. And then I want to, to look at how we can go about democratising philanthropy 
um, and in two ways there with with respect to donors and supporters and also increasingly with respect to the recipients of, of philanthropy. Um, so let's go into the first of these first, the question of the role of philanthropy within a democracy, um, which is something I think that has become a much bigger topic of conversation and debate over the last few years. I think as part of the wider kind of trend towards there being more mainstream narratives about the role of philanthropy, I think there's been increasing scrutiny of the role that philanthropy plays within within a democracy. And let's look first at the kind of, you know, the the case for the prosecution uh, in terms of the idea that philanthropy is something that's bad for democracy or kind of anti-democratic. And I, I think here, I mean, there's we're not going to be able to cover all of this in this podcast because obviously it's a pretty good big question that touches on some very deep-seated uh, issues within sort of political science, political theory, philosophy, law, and all those sorts of things. Um, but to me, there are there's kind of three broad charges that we should look at. The f- one is that um, the philanthropy inherently kind of introduces a plutocratic bias into the democratic system, so a sort of bias towards wealthy people. The second is that at whatever level philanthropy happens, uh, allowing people to form associations outside of electoral democracy introduces the risk of faction and that is something that's problematic and then the third one is that philanthropy because of the way it operates uh, introduces an element of intergenerational injustice or a bias towards either the present or the past and against the needs of the future so i want to look at these each in turn um so in terms of that first one about plutocratic bias um i mean i'll, I'll quote liberally here from the work of uh, rob reish who the stanford philosopher who we've had on the podcast before now author of just giving and, and lots of other work looking at the role of philanthropy within within a democracy um, and the kind of basic statement I think that he's given which really outlines the problem here is saying big philanthropy is often an unaccountable non-transparent donor directed and perpetual exercise of power this is something that fits uneasily at best in democratic societies that enshrine the value of political equality so the list of adjectives there um, you know unaccountable non-transparent donor directed perpetual I think actually kind of distills down quite a few different aspects that we need to unpick about what is potentially problematic here uh, the most basic point I think is that philanthropy uh, as a a way of offering those with more money uh, in a society a kind of disproportionate ability to shape political discourse and public policy is problem- problematic because it introduces uh, a bias towards those with with more wealth um, and away from the sort of you know the ideal of mass democracy where it's kind of one person one vote I think there are kind of additional factors that make this problem worse or have brought it more to light one links to that question of being non-transparent which is not true of all philanthropy um, but I think it's something you have to actively pursue to make philanthropy transparent because by its nature historically it is not necessarily and there are trends such as the increased use of things like um, limited liability uh, uh, companies so LLCs rather than traditional foundations that some donors particularly kind of um, tech donors from Silicon Valley are uh, are want to do and part of that is you know according to them about having greater flexibility about what they're able to do and not be constricted to the model of sort of standard um, grants to non-profits but critics would say it's also about avoiding even the low level of scrutiny that comes with registering as, as say a 501c3 non-profit in the US or as a kind of registered charity here in the UK which means that you have to make some declarations about where your money's coming from and where it's going 
and that actually that lack of transparency makes it even more likely that problems or concerns around the use of you know, what is called dark money to influence politics and public policy indirectly through philanthropic vehicles uh, is something we should really kind of be aware of. I'd say here as well that um, the question of the taxation of philanthropy obviously quite often gets sort of linked together with this. I think it's relevant in that I think it exacerbates the problem. So concerns about plutocratic bias in philanthropy are that much worse when you take into account the fact that tax pounds or dollars or whatever currency is also then subsidizing that giving through tax relief but i think it is also separate because if as a thought experiment you said well okay well let's just scrap all of the tax relief on philanthropy i still think the concerns about the fact that people with very large amounts of money are able to give that much more and thereby influence public policy and public discourse would still remain it's just that much worse when you know we're able to say well also some of my tax money is going towards subsidizing you know uh, their efforts to do that so i think you know we need to just be careful to, to disentangle those different elements of criticism but i think it's it's important also to say that you know that is a specific critique of philanthropy at quite a big level and i think it's an interesting question as with all critiques of elite philanthropy about where the the dividing line between problematically big philanthropy and the sort of long tail of big but not too big philanthropy and then kind of mass market giving comes um you know at what point does my ability to give become sufficiently large that I am able to exert some sort of plutocratic bias within uh, the democratic system. I mean, arguably, if you do it very smartly or cynically, you could probably do it with relatively modest amounts. But usually what we're talking about is kind of mega donors on the scale of Mark Zuckerberg or, or you know, Bill Gates or George Soros or the Koch brothers. And and so that, that kind of plutocratic bias um, critique is one that's sort of specific to that level of giving. But I would say it, it, there is also a kind of broader critique uh, that some have leveled that actually at whatever level we're talking about it philanthropy or you know giving to uh, voluntarily is and voluntary association in fact is problematic just simply invert by virtue of the fact that it provides an alternative to the system of electoral democracy and thereby allows minorities to exert a disproportionate influence um, over society and then kind of political process. And this is um, really interestingly something that George Washington was very concerned about. I mean, it's a big theme in the kind of the, the founding story of the US. And in his cl- uh, final address as president, he gave a warning about this, which I think I've read on the podcast before, but I will gladly do again, where he said, um, combinations and associations under whatever plausible character with the real designed to direct, control, counteract, or awe the regular deliberation and action of the constituted authorities, serve to organise faction, to give it an artificial and extraordinary force, to put it in the place of the delegated will of the nation, the will of a party, often a small but artful and enterprising minority of the community. Over time, these will become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be able to subvert the power of the people, and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust domination and you know, Washington wasn't alone in this kind of concerns there's a really interesting quote I think um, later on in the 19th century from William Ellery Channing who was the leader of Boston Unitarianism who's very concerned about sort of formalized voluntary associations and his critique was to say they accumulate power in a few hands and this takes place just in proportion to the surface over the, which they spread in a large institution a few men rule a few do everything and if the institution happens to be directed at objects about which conflict 
and controversy exist, a few are able to excite in the mass a strong and bitter passion, and by these to obtain an immense ascendancy. Accordingly, we fear that in this country an influence is growing up through widely spread societies, which, unless jealously watched, will gradually but surely encroach on freedom of thought, of speech, and of the press. So, for Channing and others, this led to a kind of radically decentralised view of what non-profits should be and, and what their governance should be, um, which I think we talked about um, in the podcast that we did on philanthropy and structure. So the idea there was you'd have a sort of minimal model of governance where, as far as possible, you wouldn't empower a small number of people within an institution um, and delegate power to them. You would always try and keep the um, the the non-profit or the voluntary association as reflective as possible of all of the people who were involved with it and supporting it. And, you know, this is still a kind of debate, I think, that goes on today, and we'll, we'll come on to that uh, a little bit later in the section on how we democratise philanthropy. Um, I think there's an interesting question here in light of what is currently going on in the US about whether some of these concerns and critiques are things that could be levelled at the kinds of associations that are bringing together people of the kind who are the ones who launched the attack on the Capitol. So, you know, are things like QAnon and other kind of conspiracy groups or networks that are brought together, usually in kind of um, via digital platforms or in groups that are kind of organised in that way, are they some, you know, are they in some sense part of, you know, a dark part of civil society that we should view in this way and say actually their ability to allow a minority to associate and exert a power and, and a sort of influence that is wildly out of proportion really to the number of people involved is something that we should continue to be concerned about because it obviously you know we've seen in the shocking pictures we saw this week that it can still have a tangible effect on on democracy so i think you know it's a really interesting question at this point in time and then the final um critique uh, about uh, philanthropy within a democracy that I want to look at is around the question of intergenerational justice and whether philanthropy introduces a bias towards the past or towards the present. So here, one one big theme, and it's a you know this is a very very long standing critique within philanthropy, is around the problematic nature of allowing structures that are perpetual in nature, so kind of endowed perpetual structures. The the problem has always been for for some critics that these basically it's this concern about the dead hand of the donor. So it sort of allows donors at one point in time to set in stone a series of concerns and and create institutions that reflect those concerns and priorities and ideologies but to extend the influence of those through time through their their models of uh, endowed philanthropy and foundations and so you know the idea is that the dead hand of the donor reaches from the past to influence the present and you know you can hear this critique a lot through history so the um French economist in the 18th century, I think Turgot sort of famously maybe gave one of the the first versions uh, of this when he said, um, so he said, uh, public utility is the supreme law and must not be tempered with superstitious respect for the so-called intentions of the founders as if individuals, ignorant and limited as they are, have the right to subject unborn generations to their caprice. Let us conclude that no work of man is made for eternity and since foundations continually multiplied by vanity would ultimately absorb all wealth and private property we must be able to destroy them and you know this was a critique it played a huge role in the history of philanthropy and charity in the uk where concerns about the dead hand of the donor and the way in which particularly this was resulting in sort of zombie trusts um where money was being tied up in increasingly sort of uh, in institutions that had increasingly meaningless purposes or purposes that were so narrow or tied to historic concerns that they could no longer be put to use in the present caused an enormous amount of frustration 
frustration and annoyance for many liberal reformers of the 19th century. Um, most prominent of these was probably Sir Arthur Hobhouse, who was one of the charity commissioners um, and a prominent barrister, but was he wrote an entire book based on a series of essays called The Dead Hand, which is, you know, I thoroughly recommend reading it, and I'll put links in the show notes. It's a great example of kind of florid Victorian polemic. But he asked questions like, um, for instance, he said, how come how comes it that people are allowed thus to devote property according to their caprices forever? To me, it seems the most extravagant of propositions to say that, because a man has been fortunate enough to enjoy a large share of this world's goods in this life, he shall therefore, and for no other cause, when he must quit this life and can enjoy his goods no longer, be entitled to speak from his grave forever and to dictate forever to living men how that portion of the earth's produce shall be spent. So, you know, there's the argument again that actually the because philanthropy is inherently sort of based on the voluntary choices of individuals, which, you know, are to some extent capricious and reflect, you know, all sorts of elements to do with their personal beliefs and ideology and upbringing and culture and religious background and all sort of thing. That's, for many people, problematic enough while they're alive, but if they are able to then sort of cement those into an institutional structure that continues long after their death, it becomes even more problematic. So I think that that is, you know, one element of why there is concern about these being undemocratic, certainly the longer that they, they exist. But I would also say, just finally on this, I think there's a there's a, a case to be made that even without perpetuity, you could argue philanthropy introduces a bias towards the present because precisely because it's based on the, those choices of individuals. And some would argue that people, by their their nature, are sort of more likely to be focused on issues of the immediate present, uh, the, the immediate present, because we're not very good at thinking about the future. And actually, that is why we have things like you know institutions like governments because they are able to to look further ahead over longer timescales. Now, I think that's it's an interesting point. You can hear people argue that. I think you can flip it on its head and say, actually, hmm, maybe, but you know, increasingly governments are tied to short-term political cycles and commercial enterprises are tied to increasingly short-term market cycles. And arguably philanthropy and structures like foundations that have some degree of perpetuity are a better bet when it comes to thinking about problems over the longer term. And you know, actually some individual philanthropists are much better at thinking about the the future uh, than than lots of you know governments and and commercial enterprises are these days um, and I think there's there's interesting examples there so I would say you know we've talked before on the podcast in a, an episode about um, effective altruism and that's a very interesting example here because one strong thread of thinking within uh, the kind of intellectual background behind effective altruism is about the idea of treating future lives as equal with present lives and if you if you start to judge future lives on a par with present lives it, it radically shifts your view of what are the most pressing problems that should be addressed and you know we talked in that previous episode about how this can become problematic because you make yourself subject to things like pascal's mugging which is the problem where a, an event that has a very low probability of happening but if it did happen would have a huge impact becomes much something that that actually on on the kind of utilitarian arithmetic much more likely to score highly as something that you should focus on if you take into account future lives so the the example here is like say that we're talking about um the risk of uh ai achieving super intelligence and breaking out and threatening the human race now you might not think that's especially likely and a lot of experts wouldn't either but if it does happen it threatens the entire you know future history of the human race and you're taking all of those those um lives into account that's sort of trillions and trillions of lives so even if there's a very small likelihood of it happening if you sort of multiply that by the 
the number of people it would affect, it's still pretty problematic. Whereas if you take a more likely event, you know, in the, the immediate future around, say, the climate, but, you know, it affects a smaller number of lives, actually maybe it, it scores less. In fact, the climate's probably a bad example there, because if it's, again, deemed to be a sort of existential risk, then that's that, that's still problematic. So think of another example, perhaps, that is not an existential risk, but still has a high probability of affecting a smaller number of people. But essentially the point being that there are models of thinking about philanthropy where actually they're better at taking into account future lives and perhaps therefore better when it comes to ideas of intergenerational justice. So I'd say those are sort of three key criticisms about the idea of of philanthropy within a democracy that we should take into account. Um, In the next section, I want to come back and give the the positive account of why philanthropy can be a force for good within a democracy. So back in a moment. So we're back. Um, And in this section, as I said, let's talk about uh, why philanthropy can be a positive force in strengthening uh, a democracy. So there's there's a bunch of different things I want to, to cover here. Um, let's start with the first one, which is essentially actually that philanthropy as a means of allowing a sort of decentralisation of, of public choice outside of the model of electoral democracy has overcomes one of the major problems with most existing models of democracy, which is that you get a sort of tyranny of the majority, which is, yes, you know, majority democracy allows the will of the greatest number of the people to be expressed through that system, but where there are minorities who still have very kind of valid concerns if their ability to express those concerns or have them acted on is always um, made impossible by the fact that they, they remain in the minority that is problematic so actually allowing free association through civil society and allowing people to express those views and influence public thinking public policy and public opinion in different ways is hugely important historically you know this has been a massive role of, of civil society and I'd say you know we, we talked about this in the podcast on uh, philanthropy and diversity and equity and inclusion. That's particularly true with kind of marginalised groups. So, you know, historically, I'd say um, it's really interesting stuff here from um, RJ Morris, the paper he did on, on voluntary associations. So he said, one major contribution which the voluntary association has made to ordering the complexities of urban and industrial society has been its contribution to the history of outgroups, groups which were excluded from a significant share in the legitimate structure of power. The middle classes, women and the working people of the labour movement all use voluntary societies at different times and in different ways, to formulate new identities and values, to experiment with new forms of social action and relationships, and to provide support to each other. They all went on to make and sustain a claim for a share in that legitimate power that goes with recognition and status within a dominant ideology, with an easy and uncontested place and open access to the power and resources of the state, which I think is a great summation of that role. And I come back to Rob Reich here, um, you know, he said separately in the kind of the, the modern context, saying, you know, the result the result of this is that citizen groups that cannot muster a majority consensus about a p- particular public benefit provision through the regular democratic political process will still have a tax-supported means to pursue their minority or eccentric goals. Ordinary associational rights guaranteed by a liberal society protect the liberty of every citizen to join with, the, with others to pursue dissenting or conflicting visions of the public good and the production of public benefits. The justification for subsidising this liberty through tax incentives is, is the, uh, to enhance or amplify all citizens' voices stimulate their contributions to civil society and assist minority 
parties and overcoming the constraints of majority rule. So again, making that point that there is value to allowing civil society and philanthropy as a means of supporting it as a way of allowing those minority voices to to speak up and be amplified and and therefore kind of be part of the debate. Rich obviously is making a sort of separate point about the further case to be made for why a government should offer subsidies in the form of tax breaks on philanthropy for doing that, which is you know something that we've covered before on the podcast and we could definitely talk about again. But let's park that for one minute at the moment. So the linked to this, I guess the next way um, in which philanthropy and voluntary association has long played a role in within, uh, I would argue, kind of bolstering democracy is not just in allowing those groups to come together, but in what they are able to do when they do, and that's about the the role that campaigning and advocacy uh, has played. So I think it's always really important when you're looking at the role of civil society and, and charities and philanthropy to put that part of philanthropy and civil society, the campaigning role, on a par with the kind of direct provision of services or addressing symptoms of social problems. Uh, and sometimes people sort of fail to do that. And I think that's problematic, and whether they do that either accidentally or deliberately. And I think, you know, that makes civil society a place in which people have the space to imagine how things could be other than they are, which is very important, I think, in kind of maintaining checks and balances on within a democracy and allowing people to sort of imagine other ways of doing things or other ways for, for society to be. And it also provides them a mean then means then to sort of push for change on the basis of those ideas uh, and to to challenge you know the status quo um, and the state and and I think that you know that's that's hugely important. I think there you know that that's a long-standing historical role. I think there are some other really interesting potentially kind of phil- uh, democracy enhancing roles of philanthropy that are more pertinent to this exact current moment. One I would say is around countering disinformation and, and online extremism so I think one of the the the, the things that the elements that are sort of added to some of the travails of liberal democracy um, in recent years most people would say is the role that social media and the, the kind of the online environment has played in allowing people to exist within sort of you know bubbles where a, a minority ideology can be amplified to a huge degree and a perhaps greater degree than ever before and also allow people to sort of organize in in different ways which has positive sides and you know, lots of people would cite things like what happened in the, the Arab Spring and, and examples of digital civil society around the world but then I guess the flip side of that is you know the organising that you see around conspiracy theories and QAnon that resulted in what we've seen uh, in Washington DC in the past week and you know as we think about what comes next I would say there's a definite role for philanthropy or those parts of the philanthropy world that are concerned about the sort of basic health of democracy to engage more with what role they can play uh, encountering some of those challenges um, and what that means might just be sort of highlighting the, the challenges and advocating for new legislation uh, regulation that addresses them but it might also be about um, envisioning alternatives to some of the digital platforms that we've come to rely on and which we are sort of naively I think have assumed are digital public space and this is something I talked on the podcast to Lucy Bernholtz about um, in the autumn last year uh, and the sort of the idea that actually kind of civic or civil society versions of digital infrastructure or you know public versions thereof could provide an alternative that avoids some of these challenges in the future so I think that's a really interesting area for philanthropy an area that's sort of linked to that um, is around the, the role of philanthropy in support in supporting journalism and particularly sort of public interest journalism and, and news media again something we talked on the podcast with Samir Padania about uh, and you know something where there's quite a lot of interest at the moment some interesting things happening so the uh, 
the um, Public Interest News uh, Association here in the UK got charitable status, which is kind of a big step forward in in the potential uh, role that philanthropy could be playing in supporting uh, journalism and, and news media here in the UK. And it's sort of probably more developed um, in the US and in some other parts of Europe. But I think that question of the case for supporting journalism and public interest journalism as being something philanthropy should look to as one of the best ways of securing you know the health of society and civil society um, at a local level or even at a national level is something that I think um, is increasingly being looked at. I think there are all sorts of specific challenges about how that is done and what models we use but um, I think it's uh, an area that we will see more and more focus on over the coming years. Then I guess looking to a sort of different uh, a different way in which philanthropy can um, can bolster democracy. One of these again I think we talked about before on the podcast which is more most pertinent to me to answering the critiques of the role of elite philanthropy in a democracy which as we said are about introducing a plutocratic bias the sort of counter to that or the most effective counter is probably the argument that it's a price worth paying for the ability that that sort of philanthropy brings to drive innovation within society either in terms of ways of addressing issues or in terms of kind of more fundamentally um, testing out different sorts of, of ideas in Rob Reich characterizes this as the idea of discovery and you know I think this is again uh, uh, an idea that has that has historically often been trotted out in favor of um, the role of philanthropy within society so I think there's a great uh, quote I, I quite often come back to from the social reformer Thomas Hare giving um, a speech to the Social Science Congress in about 1869, but he said, I regard endowments as an important element in the experimental branches of political and social science. No doubt the nation at large may take on itself the cost of such tentative efforts, but this involves taxation, and the assent of the majority to increase taxes could not be justly demanded by philanthropists or projectors, and certainly would not be obtained until their speculations had taken such a hold upon the public mind as no longer to require an exceptional support or propagation. The most important steps in human progress may be opposed to the prejudices not only of the multitude but even of the learned and leaders of thought in a particular epoch to sort of saying actually you have to be allow people to take you know slightly big bets or to to follow kind of things that seem like minority interests and have them supported through philanthropy so that they can take them on that process of going from the kind of margins of society and thinking through to the mainstream and then end up being ideas that that kind of result in more fundamental social reform and as i say this might be about you know particular models of address social issues which is probably more unproblematic i think there's an interesting question about where we're talking about more fundamental sort of ideas about how society should be because i think the role of philanthropy in that sort of battle of ideas and creating ideologies is is one that is fraught with problems um in the that's where i think you get into a lot of the critiques about the role that dark money has played in influencing you know the longer term nature of politics in the us and i think increasingly people are sort of concerned about in the uk and elsewhere and things like the sort of philanthropic funding of think tanks that may have uh, charitable or non-profit status is you know is an area of concern for a lot of people and i think the sort of the history of philanthropic funding for conservative ideologies in the u.s over the last 30 years or so is very interesting here because a lot of people would sort of highlight it as being you know even if you don't agree with the ideologies that are being proposed a very effective model of sort of long-term upstream philanthropy where they have a, a you know actually identified that the most effective way of achieving sort of fundamental cultural change within society is to seed a kind of very broad 
broad ecosystem of organisations that are proposing a certain set of, of ideas. And this is problematic in that a lot of it is very you know, highly untransparent and you know, touches on all kinds of issues about whether it's being improperly done in ways that sort of directly influence the electoral system. But actually, you know, there are kind of arguments that people who want to uh, espouse kind of more progressive ideals could probably learn from some of the, the approaches that have been adopted. And I think there's something really interesting there. I guess, you know, an, another argument that you might hear occasionally, maybe you'll hear it a lot at the moment, about the way in which philanthropy could be you know, more of a positive force within within a democracy is just to accept the critiques and, and sort of lean into the idea that it's anti-democratic. So basically say, well, look at the state of liberal democracy at the moment. Actually, you know, at times of crisis like this, in the service of a, a wider conception of justice, is it acceptable to say, you know, mm, electoral democracy is not doing such a great job on some of these issues now. So actually, when it comes to things like, you know, racial justice or climate justice, for instance, should philanthropy sort of actively embrace the fact that it runs counter to the, the political democratic status quo at the moment? I think the argument... those sorts of arguments to me always need to be tested by taking the worst possible version of it because it's you know it's easy for me as somebody who is deeply concerned uh, about environmental issues for instance to say i think it's fine for philanthropists or you know philanthropic institutions to act highly anti-democratically if it is in uh, the interests of kind of getting more focus and action on climate issues over the longer term but actually in terms of the question about the legitimacy of democracy i need to test myself by saying what about the the opposite version of that which is what about a, a philanthropist who holds a highly kind of climate sceptical view am I happy in the sort of interest of plurality to allow them to act equally anti-democratically in service of that ideology mm. I don't know that I am but that's that's the thought experiment that we need to be uh, kind of putting ourselves through I think then I, I want to come now before we sort of finish this section onto um, uh, two different things here but this is around the role of I guess philanthropy but more broadly the sort of voluntary action and civil society that it funds um, in enhancing uh, civic engagement and sort of civic skills. And this happens, I guess, in two ways. There's the sort of direct funding of initiatives that are designed, purposely designed to do that or to do elements of that. And this is something, you know, you see quite a, a lot of in work that's sort of designed around kind of education, around civic skills, but also historically, I think, um, things like like the involvement of philanthropy in voter registration efforts, which is not something I think we should overstate as a role of philanthropy, because I think it's at the sort of always been at the outer margins of kind of progressive social change philanthropy. But there are really interesting examples. So I'd say, you know, a fascinating one is the history of the Stern Family Fund. So um, Edith Stern, who was the daughter of Julius Rosenwald, who's a very famous and, and pretty progressive philanthropist in the early 20th century, um, she inherited money from him. Uh, she was initially kind of held back a bit in her ability to act on on that by her husband who was I think more of an of the mind of accepting the status quo so whilst they did philanthropy that addressed issues of race and, and the needs of black communities it was more kind of accepting the, the the kind of the political situation in which that happened and just sort of addressing the symptoms of problems but once he died which he, he predeceased her by quite a long way she shifted to a, a really interesting and much more radical model of supporting more kind of fundamental efforts efforts to to address those 
problems through kind of you know, transforming the, the structures. And, and they put a lot of money into supporting organisations like the NAACP um, in kind of legal defence, but also in huge kind of voter registration drives for black communities around the US. So it's a really, really interesting history. But I would also say the the, the role of philanthropy and voluntary action when it comes to civic engagement is not necessarily just about what it can fund and the outcomes that it produced through doing that and what that means for civic engagement. A really interesting thread of thought is about whether the process itself of philanthropy or or kind of voluntary action through civil society or inherently brings benefits in terms of boosting democracy. So this idea sort of comes from initially, I guess, from the work of Alexis de Tocqueville, who in his look at democracy in America sort of identified the highly associational life of, of the US at that point as one of the kind of key elements of its democracy that, that made it so great. And you know, he said, so the, the most democratic country on earth, on the face of the earth, is that in which men have in our time carried to the highest perfection the art of pursuing in common the object of their common desires and have applied this new science to the greatest number of purposes. Is this the result of accident or is there in reality any necessary connection between the principle of association and that of equality? Which is a question we'll come back to in a moment. But this is an idea that you know has run as a thread, I think, through arguments about the role of, of philanthropy in democracy. So again, I think I love to quote the 1952 Nathan Committee report, which was a big um, committee ostensibly looking at the role of charitable trusts and the law around it in the UK um, just after the establishment of the welfare state in the uh, early 1950s, actually took a much more wide-ranging and fascinating look at the role of philanthropy in, in society. And they said, the democratic state as we know it could hardly function effectively or teach the exercise of democracy to its members without such channels for and demands upon voluntary service. Not only does voluntary service act as a nursery school of democracy, but also as the field in which good neighbourliness may be exercised. And this is an interesting point of view, because I think it, it appeals in different ways to both sides of the political spectrum. So you can see a version of it on the right of the political spectrum. So, for instance, people like the historian Frank Prochaska, who comes from a sort of small-c conservative tradition, he wrote in a, a pamphlet for the Institute of Economic Affairs um, a long while ago. He said, um, seen in this light, philanthropic bodies, bodies like other voluntary associations are bastions of democratic pluralism, an expression of both the rights and duties of republican citizenship. Associational philanthropy carries forward the ancient obligation of civic duty within a commercial society, with its accent on individual autonomy. As schools of citizenship, to use Tocqueville's phrase, charities like debating clubs or societies for mutual aid are part of the process of encouraging and diffusing local democracy. But it's not limited to that sort of small-c conservative vision of, you know, Birkin uh, little platoons. There's also a version of it that works on the left, which kind of ties in more with the, the sort of mutual aid tradition rather than charitable philanthropic one. So um, in the interesting paper by uh, Davis Smith and Oppenheimer looking at some of that, they said um, an element in Labour's alternative voluntary tradition returns us to the issue of gender politics, said the traditional viewpoint, as we've seen, was condemn voluntary action for reinforcing gender stereotypes and subjugating women to a caring role. But there was an alternative tradition which recognised that voluntary action was often the only sphere in 19th and early 20th century society where women could play a leading role in the community. And as a uh, and as and such a perspective was not confined to the pre-war period. The experience of women during the British miners' strike of the 1980s shows the power of voluntary action as a politicising force. So again, sort of showing that that sphere of civil society plays a huge role there. And I guess there's a couple of other things just to say about this. One is, you know, it should be apparent that since we're talking about the process, it's not necessarily the case that what they're working on itself needs to have anything to do with politics or, or you know, attempts to make to enhance civic engagement. So um, the Robert Putnam, for instance, writing about this sort of says, you know, when individuals 
individuals belong to cross-cutting groups with diverse goals and members, their attitudes will tend to moderate as a result of group interaction and cross-pressures. These effects, it's worth noting, do not require that the manifest purpose of the association be political. Taking part in a choral society or a bird-watching club can teach self-discipline and an appreciation for the joys of successful collaboration, which is, you know, arguably one of the, the skills of sort of civic engagement. But I guess the, the question I'll leave you with at the end of this uh, inevitably overlong section is, you know, does this then, if we want to get the benefits of enhanced civic engagement through the process of voluntary action or philanthropy, what does that say about the models that we need to use for philanthropy? It's kind of, does does any approach to philanthropy or any structuring or governance model for charities or non-profits bring those benefits? Or actually... Is it only certain ways of doing things that do? Uh, and that's something we'll come on to into the next section. So stay tuned for that. Okay, so we're back. Apologies if we're running slightly long. I hope you're sticking with me. Uh, I'm enjoying myself anyway, so, you know, let's let's go with it. And so in this section, um, what I want to talk about is the question of whether democ- uh, philanthropy itself needs to be democratised in some sense if it is to perform that role uh, in terms of kind of enhancing democracy within society more widely and what this means. And, and I want to split this into two things, I think. There's, there's two, at least two different ways of looking at it. One is the ways in which we can democratise philanthropy with respect to, you know, donors or supporters. Um, so what I mean in this is in sort of how do you ensure that, you know, if you are uh, appealing to people to support a non-profit or a charitable organisation or a civil society organisation, that that results in a kind of an increase in democracy because those people are genuinely being allowed a way of kind of expressing their views through that model. What does this mean? So historically, when you look at this, the, you know, the, the point at which philanthropy arguably started to become democratic in any meaningful sense was when you had the development of the idea of um, associational philanthropy. First of all, I guess in the 17th century and then, or sorry, but, you know, 18, early 18th century and then particularly in the 19th century there was a sort of huge blossoming of it. Um, and there were couple of different models of it, interestingly. So the one that we probably understand best is what has been termed by people like R.J. Morris, who's sort of a big historian of this stuff, um, as s- subscriber democracy. So the idea here is that you would have subscribers, so donors to your organisation, and that through their subscriptions, they would be given the opportunity to vote for the, the officers of the association, and they would then have sort of delegated powers, but they would have sort of elections every once in a while. So it was democratic to the extent that you got to vote for who those people were that would then act on your desire to achieve a particular social aim. You know, arguably, to be contentious, more democratic than most charities are nowadays, because we don't necessarily have much of a say in who the people are who run those organisations. So actually, there's a layer of democracy there, you know, above and beyond what we, we currently have. But also, it, it's we need to not be naive about this, because actually, when you look historically, a lot of people would argue that, yes, that's fine. In theory, it was very democratic. But in reality, what happened was it was quite carefully controlled to replicate existing societal power dynamics and, and social structures. So Alan Kidd, for instance, looking at this, said, you know, the task of the charity organisation, uh, charity organisers can be seen as the reproduction of the theoretical framework for a ruling class consensus on the poor. Their objectives were to sustain ruling class morale and to foster the spontaneous consent of subordinate classes to that model of social relationships promoted by the ruling class itself. Um, and R.J. Morris similarly says, the creation of voluntary societies enabled the urban middle class elite to seek dominance over the 
industrial towns without the use of force, by reproducing in the voluntary societies forms of behaviour and social relationships which represented a paradigm for their ideal industrial society. So certainly at that point before the working classes had the vote, if they were able, you know, the middle classes and the upper classes were able to say, it's fine because you've got this outlet through voluntary associations and you can have some kind of vote in that, but actually, you know, the presidents and the trustees are always going to be representative of the local upper classes and actually the officers of those organisations were primarily those of the local middle classes. To what extent that was genuine, you know, uh, extension of democracy to the working classes is questionable. But the interesting thing is, even though the middle classes and the upper classes tried their best to use these voluntary associations as means of, of sort of social control in that way, it sometimes resulted in unexpected outbursts of genuine democracy. So there's really interesting examples, um, for instance, like uh, Morris gives one of the, the Leeds Temperance Society in 1836, where they had a vote on whether they should focus on temperance, so the idea that people should sort of moderate drinking, or shift towards a focus on teetotalism. Now, the sort of middle class and upper class members of the association were very much in favour of temperance, because I think they probably quite liked you know, having some a snifter of port uh, continually in the evenings. But actually, the, the more kind of radical, working class, evangelical elements of it were firmly in favour of full teetotalism. And actually, there was a vote on it, and the the working class elements of the association won. And, and Morris reports from this, he says, despite, despite pleas from the platform that the speakers on one side should properly consider what is due to the respectability and station in life of their opponents, men who have been the originators and supporters of many of the most charitable and benevolent institutions, the general meeting voted for the teetotal pledge, and the committee left the society clearly disturbed by the rejection of their social authority. So actually, you know, the intention was to, to fix that, that election within that voluntary association so that you know the, their social betters still got their way, but actually the, the working classes said, no thanks, odd that, uh, and voted for what they wanted. So I think it's really interesting. I just throw in as well, I think there's a really interesting um, alternative model of, of how you can engage donors and, and supporters historically. And this is the idea of voting charities. Now, I could, I could go into this in some detail because I find it fascinating, but I'll try and do it briefly. The idea here was that rather than the, the subscribers or the donors to an organisation being able to vote on who the, you know, the, the employees of the charity were, they would get to vote directly on who the beneficiaries of the donations of the organisation were. So it was a sort of interesting, you know, decentralised approach. And it was it was partly kind of driven by a suspicion of the idea of professional elites and intermediaries. So it says, uh, it says the, the, the anti-voting camp wanted an efficient administration performed by a knowledgeable elite. Those in favour of voting charities, fearing the disenfranchisement of subscribers and favouritism, never allowed the creation of a powerful committee that would make decisions at the expense of the free choice of the subscribers, which they saw as the driving force behind philanthropy. And I think this is a really interesting example. It came from a lot of criticism. So on the grounds, lots of people said that actually it resulted in you know terrible um, biases because you gave the power fully to the donors and, and the sort of perverse incentives then in terms of how they selected the recipients of charity resulted in all kinds of awful things. Um, most notably, I like the fact that um, uh, Florence Nightingale, famed uh, lady with a lamp, who was uh, involved in, in some of this criticism said my experience of voting charities induces me to describe it as the best system for electing the least eligible or at any rate the system for preventing the discovery of the most eligible and i just throw in that i think this is a really interesting example historically and i'm sure i've said this before on the podcast because actually in my mind 
end, it has lots of relevance to what's going on at the moment in terms of things like the disintermediation of giving into sort of increasingly peer-to-peer models um, through crowdfunding or platforms that allow direct giving to individuals. And I think some of those concerns about what kind of biases we see exhibited and moralising distinctions between deserving and undeserving cases, I think, are going to become problematic again. I just say, you know, that to me, the question about the, with these exact historical examples of ways in which um, uh, voluntary associations were, you know, made themselves democratic with respect to donors is: are charities and nonprofits today actually meaningfully democratic in any of these senses? So, you know, would the best way to democratize for a lot of nonprofits be to get better at engaging their supporters and kind of give them a more direct say over who was working for the organisation or where the money went and if they're not going to do that, actually, you know, is that why they might increasingly uh, sort of lose out to models that do? So sort of social movements that actually engage people more directly in the running of, of the movement, or those direct models of giving that kind of bypass many of the sort of traditional institutions and intermediaries. And I think this is important because a greater focus on mass giving seems to be increasingly part of the narrative uh, around how we kind of counter some of the problems with the anti-democratic nature of elite giving so the argument is sort of actually what elite donors should do is support social movements or support you know the uh, efforts to increase mass giving but actually you know if the if what we're talking about there is organizations that have uh, kind of relatively passive relationships of charitable support between the organization and the donor does that actually enhance democracy in any meaningful way or not question mark and then finally in this section, I'd say about you know another way in which we could democratise philanthropy, and that's less with respect to the donors or supporters and more with respect to the people who are the recipients of philanthropy. And I think this is an area where there's quite a lot of, of interest um, these days. But also it's sort of historically something that there have been elements of and kind of people having an interest in involving grantees in decision-making about where money is, is spent philanthropically. It's always been a kind of niche interest within philanthropy. But I think, you know, his, there have, are interesting examples of people recognising some of the challenges with this. I'm just going to read a quote from uh, a great paper on this uh, called When Grantees Become Granters by Susan Ostrander. Um, And she says, Concerns about the hierarchically structured relationship between grantors and grantees are by no means new. Nearly a century ago, Settlement House founder and progressive social scientist Jane Addams criticised what she called the charitable relation between benefactor and beneficiary for its fundamental contradiction with democracy. This contradiction lies in Adams' view of the charitable relationship as one where benefactors give in accordance with their own interests without the involvement of recipients in determining for themselves their major needs and interests. Adams explicitly labels this relationship as hierarchical. Benefactors, she claims, retain superiority and power. The charitable relation takes place at the benefactor's discretion, with the benefactor retaining the right to decide who is worthy of help and what kind of help is needed without consulting the beneficiary. And that, I think, really kind of gets to the heart of a lot of the concerns at the moment about the need to shift power as well as financial resources in philanthropy in order to make it effective, but also to make it sort of more democratically legitimate. And that's why I think there's an increasing interest um, in models of participatory grant making, uh, even if, you know, as we've discussed previously on the podcast with uh, people like Rose Longhurst, you know, maybe there's still more more rhetoric around that in reality, but I think there's some really interesting stuff going on. And I guess what that means in practice, you know, there's a spectrum of, of participation, and it could be from, you know, a traditional funder shifting to a model where they have a kind of grant-making board so that some percentage of the money that they are giving away is is determined by people who are involved in the communities that might be in receipt of it, or it might be sort of fully participatory models where all of the 
money is just handed, you know, no questions asked to the the communities uh, for for them to decide for themselves what to do with it. And obviously, you know, an interesting example here is what's gone on recently with Mackenzie Scott and her philanthropy, which, you know, there's still an element to which she is retaining power as a donor or is sharing that power with a group of advisors whom it's not entirely clear who they are um, to decide which organisations to give to. But when they do, it seems to be done on the basis of, you know, no strings attached, uh, core cost, longer term funding and therefore sort of empowering or, or giving away power to those institutions. And that's something I think we'll look at in quite a lot more detail on a, on a subsequent podcast. But there are all sorts of other ways of doing this as well. I think, you know, grant making panels, participatory budgeting, personal budgets, uh, direct cash transfers. So so I think it's, you know, it's a fascinating area. I think there are some questions, you know, that we've talked about before on the podcast about, you know, where are some of these models not appropriate? So are there kind of groups, you know, it's less easy to see how you could do it, for instance, with relation to something like environmental concerns, although if we're talking about environmental justice and supporting communities around that, it does still work. But also with, you know, uh, children or some people with disabilities, um, where those disabilities are so severe that it's difficult for those people to perhaps uh, take responsibility for that grant making themselves, it, you know, we have to look for mediated models and different approaches to, to kind of participation. But but I think, um, you know, the interesting question about this is, to me, it kind of, it challenges in some ways the the, the existing paradigm about what is supposed to be kind of effective or good philanthropy to some extent in that you know arguably if if you're if what is more important to you is to ensure that philanthropy is a means for uh, making society more democratic and kind of empowering the communities by shifting power to them as you give them money um you know does that need to be balanced against the the sort of traditional focus on metrics and outcomes or is it you just focus on the former and, and not be so concerned about the latter and you know you can argue for a case in which what if there's an example where there are sort of demonstrably worse social outcomes from giving the money to people or to a community because they make a less good decision than you would as a donor on their behalf i mean actually in most cases i think you know people that i've talked to about this say that's fine it's a thought experiment but realistically actually when you look at it communities and individuals generally do make pretty good decisions and you just you know it's about trust you have to believe as a philanthropist or a funder that you don't know best and accept that and and feel confident in empowering people to make decisions about it for themselves i think there are also interesting questions uh finally about you know how this relates to the the new excitement and focus around things like mutual aid as opposed to charitable models um and whether that sort of lends itself to some of these more participatory approaches or power shifts um which you know i'm sure is something we'll talk more about on the podcast uh, in the future okay um i just finally want to to say um a little bit you know just pulling this together about you know what what it means and and what it sort of says about where philanthropy can go next um in the hopes of a sort of jerry springer-esque you know let's leave you with a with a thought uh that, that kind of ties everything <laughs> very neatly together so i guess what i wanted to say is you know, philanthropy to me can be a powerful force for promoting and strengthening democracy but as with so many things about philanthropy i don't think it happens automatically i think we need to be intentional about it because i think as we've shown here philanthropy can equally pull in the opposite direction and be quite anti-democratic so if it's if philanthropy and and the civil society that supports is going to be a tool for repairing i guess some of the damage to democracy that we seem to have had over the last few years we need to figure out what that means about how we do philanthropy and the approaches we use and to me there's you know there's a few things here i think it requires you know more transparency from 
big donors uh, and from philanthropic institutions. I think it requires you know grant makers and and funders to take more participatory approaches or at least sort of experiment with them. I think it probably requires more support from big philanthropy for uh, the growth of mass giving um, and the kind of the the greater legitimacy that it that comes by building a broad base of support for civil society. I think it probably comes by engaging with what some of the downsides of these disintermediated models of giving are. So actually sort of saying yes, there's obviously in value to things like crowdfunding and, and direct cash transfers, but you know let's not just pile into that without questioning whether there are also things that we might need to guard against. Um, I think it's about philanthropy supporting social movements, uh, and we've talked a lot about, the, about this on the podcast with people like Megan Moon Francis um, and Regan Ralph about um, you know what that means in practice and some of the challenges that it raises about the donor finding ways of doing that where they don't kind of capture the movements or skew their focus um, and all these sorts of things. I think addressing things like perpetuity by focusing on models that that allow for spend down or kind of time limited approaches to philanthropy. I think in terms of you know what we said about approaches, um, uh, what could be funded. I think more thought needs to be gone, uh, given to the role that philanthropy can play in countering disinformation uh, and in sort of fostering digital infrastructure that avoids some of the significant challenges that we've seen in the way that these these platforms kind of erode uh, public trust and sort of um, I think undermine the the space for public discourse. Uh, I think it's also kind of support for you know more broadly public interest journalism and news media uh, and I think ongoing need for philanthropy to directly support efforts to bolster civic skills and civic engagement through things like voter registration and community organising. So I think there's a huge range of things that can be done uh, and if we do those I think the prognosis can be positive but as I say we need to be intentional about it. Okay, so that brings us to the end. I think, you know, just about on the hour. Is that acceptable? It's going to have to be. Um, if you are interested in uh, finding out more about some of the things I've been talking about, I'll put links in the show notes to various bits and pieces I've written and other people have written and podcasts that I've mentioned. If you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society, just check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, do follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis uh, or at Philiteracy uh, if you want stuff that's uh, even more about kind of abstruse stuff to do with the history of philanthropy and the theory of philanthropy if you've got ideas for things we could cover on the podcast or people i could speak to uh do drop us a line at giving thoughts uh, at cafonline.org other than that just like subscribe tell all your friends about it do leave us a nice review on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and i'll see you next time bye